Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
a teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Welcome back to the Special Education and Advocacy Podcast with Ashley Barlow. I am joined today by my friend, Salande Forte. Hi, Salande. Hi. How are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited for you to share all of your knowledge with our with my audience. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. This is special. Thank you. Well, yes, Salandi and I are friends. We actually became friends through Salandi's husband, Jeff Forte, who I met at ISEA, which is a rights law um, training. And then I met Salandi just a few months later at the COPA conference. And was that in Monterey the first time? The, yes, the first time was in Monterey. And then yeah. the second time we were um, in Baltimore. Yes. And we were scared of COVID. Really we scared. Were, we, were, we were very scared. We were a week away or days away from a closure. Like Yes. You know, it's funny, Salandi, just really quickly, what well, my audience will have to bear through a friendship conversation. I was talking to Pete Wright earlier this week and, and I um, like <laughs> name, name drop, boop. Um, and I was saying to him at COPA, it was so funny because we really didn't know, like almost at the beginning of the weekend, we were still almost laughing, like, oh, somebody's coughing, you know, and then by the end of the weekend, riding him on the airplane, I felt so uncomfortable and so scared. And it was just so crazy how it happened. I mean, that was the first weekend of March, right? So it was like, we really didn't know. You were probably flying back sometime in like March 2nd, uh, 10th or 11th. Yeah. Like okay. So it was probably the second weekend of March. Yeah. Because my kids were in school two days and then our schools closed. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It was, it was crazy. So Salandi, we started um, by, by just chatting, but why don't you take a second and introduce yourself to my audience? Sure. So um I am a board certified behavior analyst, um, doctoral level um, board certified behavior analyst, and I'm also a licensed clinical social worker. Um, by uh, way of background, um, I started my career as uh, when I was 19 as a, uh, an instructional assistant learning about autism for the first time and applied behavior analysis for the first time. Um, in order to progress and learn more about the field and help families um, who are struggling with uh, children who have been diagnosed with autism or any other developmental disability, I then said, okay, I need to go get my master's. And I thought what for me, what made the most sense was to get my master's in social work. So um, I went back to school. Um, I got my master's in social work. And then after a few years, maybe even a decade, I decided to go back and get my um, doctorate in applied behavior analysis. Um, I am currently the director of Milestones Family Services at Milestones Behavioral Services in Connecticut. Um, we have two private schools um, that serve children who are either on the autism spectrum or have a related um, uh, developmental disability. 
I also, um, at Milestones Behavioral Services, when we talk about the program that I'm the director of Milestones Family Services, have a clinic. The clinic sees uh, children between the ages of 12 months and 12 years who have been diagnosed with autism. And um, we also have a social skills group. We do school consultations. So we're in public schools a ton. Um, we also um, have a strong parent education program that I'm very passionate about. Um, and we also have a consultation program that is trying to um, expand its reach and uh, allow access um, to folks who are not able to easily access high quality ABA services. So that's called ABA Global Access. Um, yeah, so we, um, we, we sort of, uh, we serve people, right, um, on the spectrum and also with related um, developmental disabilities uh, in a variety of different aspects, right? Uh, we have a private school, but we also have a clinic. So it, that's funded by insurance. So that's awesome. yeah. And Salandi, that's why I think that your knowledge is so important because you see things in alternative placements, you see things the way that they work in children's homes, you see things in a clinical therapeutic setting. Um, and that is super valuable to um, the special education population, as you well know. Um, in fact, Salandi and I have already talked about having her on the podcast again to talk about collaborative services um, with outside BCBAs that could come in and do evaluations in school settings. Right, so right. stay tuned for that, um, because I think that there's a lot of value in that as well. Um, but the reason why we have you here today is because I really want to talk about FBAs and BIPs. Um, so functional behavioral assessments and then the behavior intervention plan that follows. Um, and the reason I want to talk about it kind of in a broad sense, Solandi, is because this is a big topic. This is like a hot topic. This is something that if I speak on behavior, my audience is higher. If I have, you know, a lot of people, um, that are interested in a topic. It's always behavior. They always want to know about behavior. Um, and so I'm so excited to talk to you today about behavior. Um, I think what I'd like to start off with is that FBA. So can you explain um, just basically what the definition of an FBA is? What's a functional behavioral assessment? Sure. So a functional behavior assessment is um, an assessment that we do as not only behavior analysts, but school psychologists or psychologists can conduct um, FBAs, um, someone who has background in um, evaluating behavior, um, like a, maybe a special education teacher or a social worker. Um, we are basically looking to understand what is making that behavior of concern tick, right? What is triggering that behavior? What's keeping it alive? Why is it still happening, right? So we're trying to understand the entire environment and what happens before the behavior, what happens after the behavior, who's reinforcing it, who's triggering it. And there's a lot that we have to examine when we're looking at a functional behavior assessment. Um, so when you ask me, what does it mean to do a functional behavior assessment? I typically say 
Well, it's an assessment that's actually going to help you gather, your team gather information um, to identify the functions of behavior. And when we talk about the functions of behavior, we're talking about why behavior is happening, okay? If you have that information, then you're able to determine what you need to do about it. And right. most importantly, how to prevent it. Because if you can prevent it, you don't have to manage it. Yeah, that and that's that's just it. So when would a parent um, be interested in an FBA? Like when, oftentimes schools will suggest doing an FBA, but um, when would it go, come up onto a parent's radar that an FBA might be appropriate at school? Um, it's, it's the same reason why it would be probably, right, come up on an educator's radar. You, there's a problem, right? There is a behavior that's interfering with um, learning, it's interfering with the daily functioning of a child um, and their family, right? It could be in this setting in the home, or it could be at school. It could be in the community. Uh, there is there there is a problem. Um, I always say, and I think this is important, Ashley, that a functional behavior assessment is a reactive assessment, meaning you recommend it or you request it when, right, there's a problem as yeah. a reactive assessment. It is, and that's, you know, that's really interesting. I've never heard um, anybody say that before, Salandi, but I agree. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why people are almost intimidated by FBAs or they think FBAs are, um, you know, like unnecessary or overkill or something because, you know, children have to be evaluated to be in special education and then they're evaluated all the time by way of progress monitoring and, and whatnot. But if there's an FBA, it's usually because there's a problem. There has to be right. a problem first right. before that FBA. That's really interesting. Yeah. And and more specifically, like, you know, when when I'm when I'm going into any setting and a team says to me, you know, oh we have, yeah, we have permission. Yeah, we have the FBA scheduled for some time this year. Um, I'll say, well, why was it requested, right? There, there's there's got to be a reason why it was requested. Oh, we have it as part of our sort of annual thing. We do it just on an annual. So we ask for it and um, we'll, we'll get it done at some point. I usually say, if there isn't a problem, if you don't suspect that there are new behaviors that are interfering, then there's no need for an FBA. Right, right, yeah. To, yeah, right. To the contrary, a lot of people think they don't need them. And to the contrary, some people think they need them or they need to change it. And you don't, you don't need to look at the FBA. If the behaviors are the same or if you've got them under control with prior interventions and, and knowledge that you got in a prior assessment, then why come back and look at it again? Right. I'm going to take it a step further too, Ashley. So let's say a, a, a functional behavior assessment was done for a behavior like um, um, I don't know, let, let's say verbal outburst, right? The kids just sort of shouting out in class. They're not able to participate. Um, you know, a lot of attention is sort of on them from their peers and from their adults telling them like, you know, like let, let's raise your hand or let's try to get gain somebody's attention, you know, in an appropriate manner. So let's say we did an FBA on verbal outburst and we put a behavior uh, intervention plan in place. 
and everything's fine and everything's working. And they're in third grade after the FBA was done and the behavior support plan was put in place. Everything's great. This year was wonderful. But then they get into fourth grade and all of a sudden the same behavior that you had basically ameliorated is now popping up again. Um, would you do another FBA on that same behavior when you already have it well understood, but a year ago, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because the environment changed. Right. If the environment changed, then maybe the function changed. Okay. Right. So you have to think about those things too. That's why I keep going back to a re it's a reactive assessment. I want to gain more information about this behavior. And there's a number of reasons. You asked me, why would a parent request it, right? Because there's a problem. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And Salandi, I want to I ask you about um, the functions of behavior. So I have so many parents um, that bring me IEPs that, and, and mostly it's in the present levels of performance or it's in progress reporting, but sometimes it's like in a weird place in the IEP where it'll really talk about a child's performance and say that they do well when they want to. And, or basically like they, if they can behave, then they do well. And I always take anything out. I've said this on the podcast before. I try to revise anything in an IEP that makes behavior look voluntary because it makes me, um, it makes me, it, it, in the IEP, then it looks like the child can control things. Um, and the whole purpose of looking at behavior is looking at the function of it to figure out the why. Mm-hmm. And so if it's, you know, if I've got a child that's really impulsive, um, then they can't control the fact that they're hitting somebody. So then we have to look at why they're hitting somebody, mm-hmm. right? Is it is it to get attention? Is it sensory regulation? Whatever. And so I try to explain that to teachers when I, you know, am revising the IEP. Um, But I think the language of the function of behavior is really important in that conversation, even if it's not in an FBA, right? So can you talk a little bit about the functions of behavior? Sure. So there are, um, there are four functions. Um, One of them is attention. So uh, an individual may be engaging in a behavior to gain attention from others. the second one is um, tangible items, right? So the, uh, the individual is trying to, engaging in behavior to gain access to something tangible. Um, the third is uh, called automatic reinforcement. So they're doing it, um, they're engaging in a behavior to gain access um, to some uh, internal uh, feeling. Uh, a lot of kids who have autism engage in stereotypic behavior, right? Because it, it, it feels good. They're kind of getting some kind of sensory input. That regulates and, Right, right. And then the last one is escape or avoidance. So I'm engaging in behavior to escape a situation that's probably not preferred um, or avoid it altogether. Mm-hmm. So those are the four functions of behavior. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. There are four functions of behavior. Um, what's important here, and you had mentioned something, you had said, if you have a kid who's impulsive, you know, um, you know, they're, they're not necessarily able to control their impulsivity. That's what you said, right? I'm then going to say, 
Well, if we understand why this child is engaging in these behaviors and we understand the function of those behaviors, then we can identify interventions that are function-based. Mm -hmm. And we then we can start to teach replacement behaviors, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. If, if they're engaging in impulsive behaviors, let's teach them how to do something different. Or proactively support them before the before the behavior even occurs comes up. So that, you know, if we do, a, if it's a child that's looking for sensory regulation and they might just need a little bit of heavy work first, um, then it never even comes up because they're regulated for the next 30 or 45 minutes or however long that sensory regulation technique works, right? And that's the beauty of it. That's the preventative side. That's why you have to look at both, right? There has One to be- I, I read a book um, when I was like, it was parenting. I didn't read it for work. Um, but at the beginning, the doctor says, the doctor that read the book says, um, parents will come to me and they'll say, I've tried it all. And he says, well, that's the problem. You need one strategy. And that has stuck with me as I've navigated behavior with children on my caseload. You know, like we just need to figure out the function and then we need to figure out how to support the function with positive interventions and replacement behaviors and, you know, kind of that litany that we'll get into here in a second. So I love that. Okay, Salandi, that is really great. Can you talk about the elements to an FBA? Because far too often I see an FBA that feels very insufficient and really doesn't tell me much about the functions of a child's behavior. What's in one? Sure. So I start with the student profile or the child's profile. That is going to help me then pick the tools and the instruments that I'm going to use to gain that information while doing that functional behavior assessment. So it's not a, an FBA is not sort of cookie cutter, right? It's not a formula. It's not, in order for it to be an FBA, it has to have these specific tools. In order to be a comprehensive FBA, yes, you need to make sure that you have indirect methods of assessment and direct methods of assessment. Mm -hmm. When I start to talk about indirect methods of assessment, I'm talking about things like interviewing the family to learn a little bit more about their child, what the behaviors are of concern, and the environments that this behavior is occurring most often in, or with who right? What, understanding what the triggers are. Once I start to interview, then I gain more information about where I need to then observe the behavior happening. So that's useful. I can't leave out those indirect methods of assessment. I can't leave out questionnaires. So one of the things that I do is I give the parent a questionnaire. Now I administer it myself. I don't just hand it to them because I feel like when they're answering these questions, I can dive deep into why they responded that way. Again, gaining more information. So typically what I do with the questionnaire is I use um, either uh, the FAST, which is the functional assessment screening tool. Um, I can also use the QABF, which is the questions about um, behavioral function. Um, and I can also look at something that's called the MAS, the uh, motivational assessment scale. So I'm going to look at one of those. I don't have to do all three, but I'm gonna pick one based on the child's profile, okay? Which one makes the most sense now that I understand the, the kid's profile, all right? 
now I'm going to, after I've sort of have a good understanding of what the, what's happening, right? And, and I've met with maybe the school team and identified what the target behaviors are. That's really important. At, at, once we have, have identified the target behaviors and we have defined them, a draft, right? An idea of a yeah. definition, right? So ahead of time to discuss what we're looking at, what target mm -hmm. behaviors we're looking at, right? Exactly. exactly. Um, I will revise that definition once I have completed the FBA, but to start, we should have the target behaviors and the definition, okay? Mm -hmm. Once we're done with our indirect methods of assessment, now is where you get into the meat of the functional behavior assessment. You do your direct methods of assessment. That means your eyes and your ears, right? Even sometimes your, your body, right? Because you may be in that room and I may feel the impact of a kid who's pretty aggressive and I'm saying, okay, that was pretty intense, right? Or, hmm, that seems superficial, right? It wasn't that bad. Um, it could take an easy, you know, easy redirection. Um, so that is when I then say, okay, now we have to start to collect some data. The first thing that I start to collect, it's called antecedent behavior consequence data, ABC data. An FBA is not an FBA unless you have ABC data. Thank you. <laughs> and how long, Solani, should we take that data? I see it so often where there's ABC data that's like literally taken over the course of a morning and then they draft the FBA. And it's probably the morning before the IEP meeting. And okay. I say, yeah, I mean, shouldn't we behavior, we're talking about human behavior. So shouldn't we look at it over the course of time in order to get a good sense of how it occurs day to day, different times of the day, who's in the classroom, what setting we're in, all of those things? So you want to have enough data to start to see patterns. If you don't have enough data to pick up and do an ABC data analysis and then start to graph that data and see and identify patterns of behavior, right? When these things are happening, what happens before the behavior, what people are doing about the behavior, how they're responding, then you haven't collected enough data, mm -hmm. okay? I can't tell you it has to be done across a number of hours or across a number of days because every behavior is different. If a behavior happens at very low frequencies, I may be there for weeks, okay? But if a behavior happens at high rates, I may collect my data in a full day and have enough to say, oh my goodness, this is, this is a serious situation, right? Um, so it all really depends. You need enough of it though to analyze, okay? Um, the second, you know, there, there's a couple of things that I, I wanna take a look at. I wanna collect summative data, right? How often is the behavior happening? Frequency data how long are the episodes of the behavior duration, how intense, right? So I wanna measure intensity, how severe are these behaviors? Um, I may also look at latency um, and I may also- Latency is, is how long in between behaviors? Um, well, that that is actually um, uh, inter-response. So inter-response is like when a behavior stopped and when it started. Okay. Latency is when I asked him to write his name, how long did it take him to write his name? Okay. 
Okay. I knew, okay. I knew we weren't doing something. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing to look at too. So almost like response time. Sure. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So latency, I would say is equivalent to response time. Okay. Right. Okay. So I'm going to take a look at all those and I'm going to graph my data and then analyze it again. Right. And compare it to all the other findings that I have, all the other information that I've gathered. There's also something that's called the scatter plot. Um, and let me tell you if it's okay, a little story about how a scatter plot sort of uh, was really helpful in, my, in one of the cases that I had. Yeah. So a, a scatter plot is when you look at the day, okay, and you break it down into, let's say, I don't know, periods, right? So let's say I'm out of school, I'm breaking a scattered plot down into periods, and I leave, but I, the instructions that I leave for the uh, staff are that they're supposed to highlight if the behavior occurred in that sort of block of time. And when I come back at the end of the week, I take a look at the schedule and then I start to see if there are po pockets, right? Like really, really big sort of areas where the behavior is happening the most often. Um, and the reason why I do this is so that I know that's where I have to go and observe the behavior, okay? And where it's not happening and data is not being collected, I've got to go there too. Why? Because where it's not happening, some something is happening that is, uh, you know, not triggering the behavior or preventing the behavior. Either somebody's doing a really good job at delivering intervention, or somebody's just not doing anything. Right? Yeah. And Solani, I love that you say that because. You know, so often that's a misunderstood thing about behavior in and of itself is that we can support a behavior and we can trigger a behavior. So we can, or we can support a child so that the behavior doesn't happen. We can use proactive strategies and a child can be triggered as well. And so we might need some reactive strategies. Mm -hmm. And far too often I see schools that say, oh, well, we do positive behavior intervention supports. And so we've got this PBIS and it works for everybody and it doesn't. And then they say, well, we aren't going to do anything reactive or vice versa, you know, places where it's only reactive and particularly if it's attention seeking or tangible item is the function of the behavior and they are reacting every single time something happens, then we're just feeding into that behavior. So I'm really happy that you said that that's kind of tangential to what we're talking about right now, but I'm just really happy you said that because I have to say that in so many meetings that I just think that's really misunderstood sometimes. It, yeah, both are important. Um, when I'm teaching my graduate students um, and they're doing their first functional behavior assessment and writing their first behavior interventions plans, I usually say to them, the paper better weigh heavy on preventative strategies. Yes. And weigh less on reactive strategies because if you have really good preventative interventions, you never have to react to it. You, okay. should have, you should have reactive strategies in there. Why? Because you need to know what to do if the behavior happens. Right. right? It doesn't happen. Right. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So um, I want to move on to behavior intervention plans, but before sure. that, um, so there's lots of elements to an FBA, but I, but that ABC data and then starting with the student's profile and some good um, data really is the key to it. Right. Um, so, but I want to ask you one thing first, and that is in the FBA, I love what you just said is we need those strategies. So 
So many FBAs that I read don't have that. They never play with the consequence. They never see if they can figure out how to support the behavior. And so can you walk us through, if, a, if an FBA is lacking that, what would a parent, how would a parent ask for that? Like, how do we say this FBA doesn't have any information about what we do now? It just goes through the functions after a half a day of observation. Your, well, that in my FBAs, it's part of my recommendations. So my recommendations will outline for the team what the behavior intervention plan needs to address and how they need to address it. Mm -hmm. The summary, the, the recommendations, well, the, you know, the summary and the recommendations um, won't necessarily provide you with protocols as to, you know, how, how to actually implement an intervention, but it'll tell you what intervention needs to be done. Um, I, I mean, yes, there are times where I'm working with teams and they write up an FBA and there isn't, there may be a summary, but there aren't any recommendations. I could understand how that's frustrating. Um, <laughs> like, and, why do you do this? Yeah, it, it is. I could see if, 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 if I was the parent at the table, I can see how that is very frustrating. Um, what I what I will I never do, I make sure that there are recommendations. Um, what I will say, however, is that the FBA should be accepted before you develop the behavior support plan because if it's not accepted and it's not comprehensive and it's and 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 the team isn't feeling as though it's complete, then you can't really move forward with developing the behavior intervention plan. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I want to be sensitive to both scenarios, right? I can, well, yes, I can totally understand how a family may be upset. Like even a teacher, I'd be upset. I'm like, just tell me what to do now. Right. Right. And that's what, but I understand what you're saying. So even if you get one that you think isn't comprehensive, you can take the information from it and try to use that to develop a good behavior support plan. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So behavior support plan, behavior intervention plans that would follow then the FBA. That's the document that then would provide the behavioral supports, whether proactive or reactive to support the child. So can you kind of describe in a nutshell what I call it a BIP, a behavior intervention plan. Mm -hmm. um, I like the word support better than intervention actually, because it's more comprehensive. Mm -hmm. um, so can you tell us kind of in a nutshell what that document is? Sure. So um, we're using behavior intervention plan and behavior support plan very often sort of like, it's the same thing. Yes. Okay. Um, a behavior intervention plan has your target behavior or behaviors, right, with the operational definition. So it's very clear what is happening, okay? Um, it's defined well, so if you and I have never seen the behavior and now we read it and then we see it, we can say, ah, yeah, that's what I pictured based upon reading this definition. So it starts off with that. Then the next thing a behavior intervention plan has that follows the, each target behavior are the replacement behaviors. So when you identify a target behavior, you better have replacement behavior behaviors to address that problem, mm -hmm. okay? 
So you have now identified those and defined them a little bit too. The first then section of strategies or interventions are your preventative strategies or interventions, right? How can I prevent this behavior from happening? How can I arrange the environment so that I can avoid triggering this behavior? How can I arrange the environment so that it is uh, so rich with, um, with visual supports if, it's, if necessary, um, reinforcement if necessary, um, uh, uh, movement breaks. You know, if I have worked with an OT, an occupational therapist, and she has said to me, you know what, I've noticed that when I, you know, when I engage in this kind of activity and then go and, you know, do some reading, there's, there's more engagement, right? And I'm going to say, okay, that could be a strategy that we use. She's recommending it. I'm supporting it based on the information that I've gathered and we're working together, right? To make sure that we develop this behavior support plan that's informed by everyone, right? Um, so, that's the section that I keep saying has to be heavy, heavy, heavy. What that also includes is some reinforcement strategies, right? Do we need formal, individualized, specific reinforcement systems in place, right? Token economy systems. Yeah. Um, something that I call uh, deferential reinforcement systems, right? Um, do I need to be that sort of specific? The per, that's in your preventative section, right? right? That's where you're going to be including all that information. Um, do I need to make sure that the, the child, when they come into school, um, the first thing that we do is we offer them to finish their breakfast, right? Because maybe we've identified that they can't communicate that they're hungry and, you know, they're just not eating at home. And we found out that, hey, they really need to be, have their tummy satisfied before we start instruction, right? They're hangry, okay? <laughs> Those types of things, you, you'll be surprised what I find in, as part of an FBA. The child's not able to communicate to tell you he's hungry, right? Let's make sure mom and I are on board. We discovered, we didn't realize we, we now through this functional behavior assessment, we discovered that he's hungry. And that's like one piece of the many things that are probably going wrong. Right. Um, so things like that, right? Offering an extra snack, um, you know, uh, doing preference assessments to figure out what the child is uh, motivated by and what they are not motivated by, right? Don't, don't make assumptions. Then we move to the next section, which is now your management, right? Mm -hmm. If these behaviors happen, what am I supposed to do about it? Because I don't want to continue to reinforce it or maintain it. Right. So that section, again, is specific, but it doesn't have to necessarily be heavy because you want to make sure that you're preventing the behavior from happening, but it's necessary, especially if you're talking about behaviors that are unsafe, right? You want to make sure that we're, we have those things in place for when the behavior happens um, so that we can block it, so that we can redirect it um, and, and, and implement the procedures that we need and the protocols to keep the child safe. Well, and it just kind of describes the if then, because you've built the framework at the beginning, you know, you've developed those, 
the litany of replacement behaviors and you've developed the litany of preventative um, measures that you've taken already and and you might be able to flip over and if, if you catch it early enough and get back into a preventative cycle um, but when you talk about management you're really talking about um, you're, you're just kind of reiterating those and saying if this happens then we're going to use this strategy and if this happens then we use this strategy that you've already articulated up above right right right, right. yeah and you know that's so many parents will now look at their their behavior plans and say oh my gosh, mine only has this management section, but nothing's described above. There's no replacement behaviors in this FBA or this BIP. There's no um, any kind of preventative strategies in this document. And I know that's going to happen as my audience is listening because I read them at least once a week. I read one that is really weak on that stuff. Um, so that is a gold mine of information, Salandi. I know this is what you do every day, but um, that kind of tick list of what should be in the document is really, really powerful information for people. Um, Ashley, if I could just jump in really quick, what you don't want to leave out of a behavior support plan is also how you're going to uh, collect data to evaluate if it's working and how you're going to uh, fade that plan out or discontinue it in the for the future. So those are two pieces that are important, smaller areas, but important. I didn't, I have never seen that. And I love that. So both things, so take data. So, so even if it's not a goal in the IEP as part of the BIP, we should be taking data on the target behaviors and how they're occurring, even if it isn't every minute of every day or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then also a plan to fade the supports. Yeah, yeah. So plan to fade and discontinue the supports. And then uh, you're not just collecting data on the target behaviors, you're collecting data also on the replacement behaviors because you wanna see those improve. You wanna see those happening. Right, right, right. So you wanna see that graph go up and you wanna see the behavior exactly. graph go down. Exactly. Oh, see, I knew you were smart. You, you <laughs> Salandi, thank you so, so much. This is really, really good information. Good. So Salandi, um, I, I promise my audience that I will bring you back because we've got a goldmine of information to talk about when we talk about collaborating with an outside BCBA or behaviorist um, with your school district, bringing you on as part of the team so that we aren't looking at an FBA as an IEE, an independent educational evaluation. Um, I'm really excited for that conversation too. But before we sign off today, will you tell everybody where they can find you and your company, Milestones Behavioral Health? Sure. So um, you can find us, uh, our website's www.mbs-inc.org. We are also on Facebook. Um, so if you look for Milestones Behavioral Services, um, comma, Inc., you should find us on Facebook. Um, and my, um, my email, if you all want to email me directly, I'm totally fine with that, is S as in Sam, F as in Frank, O-R-T-E at mbs-inc.org. Um, I'm happy to, to chat. I'm here as a resource, um, even from Connecticut. 
So if you, if you want to call and you want to chat about FBAs and behavior support plans and some of the other work that we do, um, give us a call. Oh my gosh. You're too kind. Thank you. so <laughs> much. This has been such an honor. Thanks, Salandi. Thank you for having me.